Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Today's show, Dr. Samuel Khan considers societal decline and the explosion of violence in a variety of historical and contemporary settings. The COVID pandemic provides all the proof you need that corporate healthcare is fatal. There is an avalanche of blue-collar baby boomer retirements coming. Are we ready? Ken Rusk is going to talk about that. So, folks, you know what time it is, and you know what we have to get done now. Let's get busy. Folks, we have a great show for you today. Do remember, we are in fun drive right now, but you are still getting yourself a great program uh, that we work at putting together for you stuff that you some that you may know on a small level some that you may not know at all that's why we're here politics done right kpft 90.1 fm houston we're asking you to invest in this community radio station but why because folks there's a lot of media out there but it's not media that you control. It's not media that has your interests at hand. When we're talking about community radio, when we're talking about this community radio station, KPFT 90.1 FM, we're talking about a station that is solely funded by whom? You. And if it is funded by you, our loyalty is to you. Most other stations, commercial stations, they're funded by their advertisers and their advertiser needs to program you. And they need to have you in a particular modal. That is why our politics is so bad. Because we need you uninformed. Politics done right doesn't believe in that. Politics done right, KPFT 90.1 FM. Pacifica Network, we don't believe that. We believe that it is essential that you are in control. It is essential that you support us so that we can feed the ethos that we can give, we can enlighten with what is the absolute truth. In that light, I'm asking you to please call 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org and support us. You can support us with a $25 membership, a $40 membership, or you can get any one of our gifts that you find there. Please do this in the name of Politics Done Right. Also, remember, 
that you can get one of my several books out there. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia. Take away the economy from those who rigged it. Pledge of $120. You can get any two of those books for $200. Any three of those books for $250. That is in, That is to support our station. And all those books, I promise you, give you all that you need to have that conversation across the board to ensure, to help us make a better America. So please support us. Please support KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Call 713-526-5738 or visit kpft.org. In the name of Politics Done Right, please select one of our books, several of our books, or one of our offers. We're here for you. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nour- nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. I'm honored to be with someone I wanted to speak to for some time. Samuel Cohn is a professor of sociology at Texas A&M University and the founder and first president of the American Sociological Association Section on Development. Cohn is, has won three prizes from the American Sociological Association for his scholarly work about economic development, sociology, and gender equality. Cohn's previous four books focus on uh, macrosociology and social change, and his research has encompassed Victorian uh, Britain, late 19th century France, contemporary Brazil, and the contemporary United States. For the last 15 years, Cohn's primary course at Texas A&M has focused on societal death. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to him, especially in the current context of America. Welcome to Politics Unright, Dr. Cohn. I am thrilled to be here. That's the best introduction I'll ever get. Well, you know what? It's 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 worth it. And you know, at Politics Done Right, we do things right. We try. We hope. That's what we. I try. love it. Anyway, I love it. Anyhow, um. The biggest questions. Uh, why do societies die? Well, the bigger question, if you think about it, is how do societies manage to live as long as they do? I am sure you're going We've to tell me. Been, well, I'll toss out some tips. Think about what we take for granted. That in the last 2,000 years, we've been seeing nothing but continuous economic growth going forward. 
we see nothing but technological progress that gets better and better and better, although there were some stops that we know about, like the Middle Ages. We assume that the world gets more and more peaceful, and if you do all the advanced studies, you see crime is down, warfare is down, and we've gotten somewhat spoiled, believing that that's kind of our own natural entitlement. Well, if you really think about this for a minute, there's nothing that comes with that automatically. All of that comes from, we, we're used to depressions, short-term periods where economic growth and seems to stop uncontrollably. And then we wonder, how in the world did we ever get this thing going again? Well, in fact, this all depends on people continuing to cooperate with each other. People not killing each other. Like, you know, we all know if we were to push the nuclear button, it would all go. But if you take a, it assumes that governments continue to work and do their job. And if you look at the foundations of how societies grow, in the book I give law, I can give you a 12-step complicated model of how they die. You're not going to get all 12 steps. But the basic spirit of some of the things in that general process. There's a government that everyone basically believes in, that they pay their taxes for, and it does things like keep the society free of crime. It acquires natural resources when required. It runs schools. It builds infrastructures. It does the job of keeping things humming. You create a large safe space where people tend to not fight each other. Uh, the United States had a civil war, but it kind of is the case that you don't have to worry about California fighting Maine anytime soon, or even really despite our red state, blue state stuff, there's no one who's really concerned that New York State's going to invade Alabama. Right. Okay. And in this context of a safe space where everyone agrees to treat each other nice, people can do business Commercial transactions will be legally enforceable. I can't rip people off and hope that I can get away with it. There's a certain amount of trust and confidence, and we work on big projects of common interest. Uh, we've developed the Internet. Uh, think about the enormous accomplishment of developing a coronavirus vaccine mm -hmm. in record time. We can pull big projects off very well. As people become suspicious of each other, and this can be ethnic reasons. It can be political reasons. But groups fall apart. The Roman Empire split into an eastern half and a western half. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, Northern Ireland, Catholic versus Protestant. I, if you doctor, think let about me, I want to interrupt you because you brought up two issues, very important issues. And I want to ask you in the context of those issues, were those uh, could those have caused that societal destruction that you talk about, both Absolutely. the separation of Europe and the separation of Ireland? A Absolutely. Well, just common sense was Northern Ireland supports part of Great Britain. Right. And some of this comes from the implicit bad way that England treated Ireland as a whole. Gotcha. But even if Northern Ireland was a somewhat privileged group that got better treatment than Southern Ireland, the constant warfare between the Catholics and the Protestants was certainly not helpful. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, please no, but no, but no, but this is this is the essence of the point. Um, if you think, if you will, about the American South, that had a North that largely accommodated immigrants as they came in, 
and you had a South that was divided into white versus black, and blacks were artificially kept without income, first through the institution of slavery, and then once slavery was technically illegal, the use of vigilante laws or debt peonage or sharecropping keep blacks practically without income, nominally free. And what happened in all of those cases is that the whites thought that they were getting this marvelous benefit in the South by keeping themselves above the blacks. In the North, there was purchasing power by the working class. So the working class bought products made by Northern manufacturers. There was steady economic wealth because you could open up any kind of a business to be someone to sell to. The South didn't have a consumer market because some 40 to 60% of the population were kept too poor to buy anything. It was simply harder for Southern businessmen to become successful than Northern businessmen, and the South got poorer and poorer and poorer. Note that when does this get cured? They mechanize agriculture, which means they decide to stop keeping blacks without any pay whatsoever, and they got rid of the debt peonage and they got rid of the sharecropping. So suddenly the blacks around had income. They started spending. But also blacks were allowed to go to the North and many of them sent money back, back to their in, relatives back in the South. Just like we do and, in Cuba or other places. Same place. And suddenly, black people had money and poor white people in the South had money. And so the boom of the new South starts around 1940s. And that's what gives you juggernauts like Atlanta today, where now the South is a legitimately prosperous place. And the North is wondering if they can keep up. It's all based on greater equality and greater cooperation between groups. Now, you just wrote this book recently. Uh, did uh, the, ad, the, the, the actions of, let's say, our past president uh, kind of lead you on to this? Or uh, did, did you see something that warranted the writing of this book? Historically, the record on how societies fall goes back centuries and centuries. So having seen like the fall of the Egyptian empires, fall of Rome, fall of Byzantium was particularly important. So I was seeing the library reading my books, but there's no question that the rising divisiveness of sectarian politicians on both sides of the would probably have to say that the use of wedge issues is greater on the right than it is on the left. And while we like to talk about the personality of Donald Trump, in many ways, there were many features of this. Now, before we write these off, all oh, these terrible, hateful people. There's another issue that has to be taken into account, too, and that's the whole tax revolt and the rise of the Tea Party, which we like to think is narrowly racialized. But in fact, there's more to it than that. And the more to it than that makes it more destructive. So this does this makes it Worse rather than better. Explain that. I don't I don't quite think because I always looked at the Tea Party movement as sort of an astroturf movement. You're saying it's deeper than that. It's, it's, it's absolutely financial. And to some extent, you know, we all read Marx and we knew that capitalism was supposed to have internal contradictions. But, you know, the working class rising up and seizing New York City, that really wasn't a very plausible story. When leftists tried to tell that, you know, oh, come on. There was a Marxist in the 1970s named James O'Connor who fixed it, who identified that a right-wing middle class would become the revolutionary class in capitalism rather than a left-wing working class. Explain that. That is actually quite intriguing. Explain that. 
Okay, because what is happening all over the world is that middle classes are turning right wing and anti-state. Why? And the reason for this is tied into the dynamics of capitalism. Remember, we talked about a government that provides all the necessary functions of capitalism, right. education, scientific research, defense. Someone's got to pay those bills. Now, who pays the bills? In general, the poor people don't have any money to pay the bills. You can't tax people who ain't got squat. The middle class can pay bills, so small business can pay bills. And wealthy individuals, so doctors and lawyers, can pay bills. Even Bill Gates can pay bills as a guy. Corporations, and particularly very large corporations, tend to write tax exemptions into the law. They use their K Street lobbyists. Right. So if you, we have the phenomenon in the United States. Amazon pays almost no taxes. General Electric pays almost no taxes. It's extremely common for monopoly capital to pay far less than its share of income in taxes. That means that the other sources of tax payments have to pick up the entire slat leftover. So who and so ironically, you know, we talk about the one percent, the one percent. That's not entirely correct. It's profoundly correct, but it needs a slight twist. Bill Gates, as an individual, pays plenty of taxes. Microsoft pays nothing. Right. And the group that pays nothing is called monopoly capital. And the even though we, we've given them personhood, but they want personhood. And at the same time, they don't want to do their personal responsibility. And they also get the lion's share of government expenditures spent on them. Right. So they get the Defense Department contracts. If they get the bailouts in the in all the cases of big bailouts, large bank, you know, small people, individuals lost their homes. Small businesses were wiped out. Banks got. General Motors got. Uh, yeah, bailout. the big bailout. Banks yeah. got bailouts and all of the privileges. Go to the people who aren't paying the bills and your middle class and rich individuals pay the bills. It's basically what happened around the 1980s is that they got wise to it. People realized what was happening and that the middle class was paying for everyone else except themselves. Unwisely, they only attacked lower class benefits. They attacked welfare. They attacked welfare mothers. They attacked minorities. It became racialized. They attacked illegal immigrants. Oh, they're getting Zoma services. They did not really think about the who's really taking their money. But either way, they realized they were stuck paying the bills, and they decided to not pay the bills. And it's not just the United States. This is the basis of conservative movements in Canada, which are somewhat weaker. In Britain, why Boris Johnson keeps winning election after election. The rise of both the Orthodox and the neo-fascist right in places like Germany. It is the rise of Bolsonaro, where Brazilian taxpayers who pay far more than we do are very sick of all the deals. They're also sick of the corruption. There's some of this behind Indo nationalism and Modi. The more you look, the more you find that there are pocketbook issues behind the rise of this new right. And so this is why even if Donald Trump had never happened, let's imagine Donald Trump suddenly decided to run golf courses and hospitals and didn't like this television game where his ego got hurt. Fine. Do you think that Ted Cruz would have behaved much differently? Not at all. 
Precisely. A, now, let me ask you a question because I think oh. this is important. This is very important. Okay. Um, you, I agree with everything that you've just said. But w- w- the one thing that I, I, I think I want to, I don't know if I would call it a pushback, but ask about is that, um, is that should the middle class is not just comprised of the right. A large por- percentage of the middle class are people who would consider themselves like myself left. Okay. That's a correct statement. Uh, uh, so my thing is, I think we are fighting the same battle. Are you then saying maybe the folks on the right maybe are simply just more militant than the ones on the left? Because it seems that we're searching for the same thing while the leadership that they're putting forth are simply conning them. Because okay, go ahead. Well, you're you're well, you're absolutely correct. Two, no economic politics is not purely economic interest. Mm-hmm. Okay, we experience, for instance, um, many Hispanics who supported Trump during the most recent election. Mm-hmm. And the question is, am I better off not being persecuted by immigration authorities, or am I better off having someone who won't make me wear masks and will allow me to work? And different people within the Hispanic community read their interest in different ways. Um, Many middle-class people, they work for universities or they work for the state. And so as essentially members of a state capitalist class, Mm -hmm. they're fairly favorable to the expansion of state spending. But above and beyond economic interests, and economic interests are often very detailed based on your, exactly where your bread is buttered, there, is, there are social networks, there's socialization, there's organization, there are other issues in this world besides economic. And so what happens is that just as even at our highest level of the high, you have Ben and Jerry style capitalists, and then you have all our people uh, you know, supporting election fraud claims, you know, they will make mattresses. Okay. There are going to be divisions within each class, but what happens is that when you have a large group of people who share it, it provides a block. And that block existed from 1980 to the present day, but did not exist in American politics. At the same time, it's probably worth mentioning, just for the American case, a block that disappeared was organized labor. Because before the global, effective globalization of production, when you could basically strike in a city or strike in a state, you could get a good solid block on the labor supply and you had a chance of winning your strike. And firms are always going to locate in your state so they would sign a union contract. Once transportation improved to the point that it was possible to build, do physical production overseas in Asia or on the Mexican border or soon to come places like Ethiopia or the Ivory Coast, Once these become areas of cheap labor production, labor unions became less viable in the West, not entirely. In Europe, they still exist in some places due to legal protections. So the disappearance of a major force pushing for income distribution and the rise of a new force pushing for un-income redistribution because you want to keep our money led to a huge tilt away from left politics towards right politics. Uh, typically progressive academics concentrate on the fall of the labor movement and hope that if they're progressive enough in academia, they'll be able to mobilize all the groups together to recreate the social circumstances of the 1930s and 50s. Realistically, with the globalization of production, 
that's kind of hoping you're going to put the genie back in the bottle. I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because, you know, we've been talking about putting the union uh, back together, et cetera, et cetera. And we really find out that that is probably not likely. It seems to me like uh, what's going to have to happen is the law. In other words, it's a, if, if we look at just economic advantage, the plutocrats that control everything will do, since they're the ones controlling where production is, et cetera, they will rule. The only way to get around that is the law, right? To say you can't do that, you can't bring these products in, you cannot manufacture X, Y, Z. It seems like only the law could do that. And it seems to me that is where you should have the alliance. You know, I, I, we talk about destruction of, of nations and our society. It seems like the inability of the right and the left who have similar interests on the middle class level, it seems like those getting together to institute politicians that will pass laws because again i always thought capitalism was a fraud i don't know what you think but i think capitalism is a fraud okay uh but um but it seems to me that that is the next step that should have been taken and once you take that step it actually obfuscate what capitalism is is anyway well let's talk a little bit about the eighth about the law and it's about what you're talking about common strategies what drives long-term economic growth is innovation. There's generally going to be, let's talk about two stages, innovation, you have a brand new idea, and you're the only person who knows how to do it, and then physical, simple production. Mm -hmm. Once you're at the level of simple physical production, there's a globalized logic, because the cheapest labor is going to produce it more efficiently. Right. The general trend for all products has been to start in the nation of the inventor, and then move towards increasingly lower labor pools as people get lower and lower costs. It's, we saw it happen to automobiles where it started in the United States, you know, started in the United States, then Japan picked up, and now all mm -hmm. sorts of people can make automobiles. And if Europeans want to talk their contribution to autos, I'll let them have that. That was an America-centric, but close enough. Once you the most of the great economic powers in the world were funded by a great innovation, England with the invention of mechanical right. textile manufacture. Then England with the making of railroads. Germany and the United States shared credit on structural steel, mm -hmm. which is why the great political battles of Best 1890 to 1945 were America versus Germany. They were the right. two rivals, seeing which one was going to be top dog. America with automobiles, and then America with computer, internet, software products. As a general rule, once they had that, production costs never mattered in the glory days. So production costs don't matter in Silicon Valley now because everyone wants the latest, greatest coming out of Silicon Valley. As software becomes cheaper and more standardized, it then becomes a matter of who makes it better. And that's where the Indians and the Chinese and the Russians and other people start undercutting your American wealth. You're not going to really be able to fully stop free markets. If smuggling lots of kings and queens in the Middle Ages and the 1600s wanted to stop foreign trade and smuggling was just rife. And there's all sorts of colorful ports all over Europe where the pirates used to bring their boats and they bring the goods in. One way, you know what? Let's not have any marijuana. Let's not have any cocaine in our country. So we're going to close the border. Can't fail, right? War of drugs has been fantastic. Well, actually, right? you know, here, here's, here's where you and I may differ. I think that that it is our economic system that that really that you're talking about. 
you're talking about uh, your a capitalist structure lends itself to all those things that you've spoken about. Okay, and let's talk about capitalism right on foot. Cap, we, we are in essence kept people. Okay, and you can use yeah. more vulgar terms for kept. Realistically, capitalism will always involve certain contradictions that are fatal. And they're, and, and they're intrinsic. So uh, I, I want you to repeat that. What you just said is very important. Capitalism always has contradictions that are fatal. So we talk about all societies die. A lot of this comes from capitalist dynamics. That's what Richard Wolff says as well. Uh, that's what, that's what, what many I, people have said as well. Yes. How you get to the death matters because many critics of capitalism have sentimentalized inaccurate models of fall. You know, the worker rebellion rising up. Which won't, okay? yeah. Okay, that's not going. It's not going to happen on our watch. Um, currently, the green Marxists are a little bit closer to the. You know, we talk about contradiction in the forces right. and relations of production. Um, the green Marxists correctly argue that, and I'm I'm going to move from orthodox formulations to ones that I think are more viable to get to the contradictions of capitalism. You can improve over the worker rebellion model with the ecological contradictions model which is sometimes called the treadmill of production. Mm-hmm. The idea is that as we produce more and more, we consume more and more scarce resources on the planet. We destroy more and more at Earth. There's an intrinsic contradiction with increased human production and the way of nature. And finally, that nature is going to rise up and kill us as a species. Right. Okay. And you can look at global warming. Uh, one of the factors that's not fully appreciated in this is desertification. Yes. As we start, population grows in sensitive areas. You start destroying areas that people lose their livelihood. And when they lose their livelihood, they become violent. Yes. So while everyone is thinking about a movie where like some Hollywood disaster film where a tidal wave comes and eats Los Angeles, because everything, when we think about the death of capitalism is us, 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 Americans, American, Americans, and poor people. Yeah. Well, if you look in the global south at the people who are really taking the brunt of this, and we will occasionally think about people living on low-lying islands in the Indian Ocean. Right now on the edge of the Sahara, you see the effect of this now, and we only think global warming. We're not thinking population growth. The bigger the population, the more consumption of resources and the more everything goes. Exactly. And so widespread pop, and we always, the population bomb, not a problem. We got contraception. We've invented, we're on it. That's our vaccine. And so people blew off population growth. Oh, that's so 70s. Don't blow that off. By all demographic models, it's called something called population momentum that has the world population being some 40 to 50 percent bigger by the time it stabilizes with contraception. There is no way the Earth's resource base can support 40 to 50 percent more humans, but that is what's coming. Dr. Dr. Cohn, I could speak to you for a few hours at a time because that's so much material that you have in there and so much knowledge that we would want to impart on our people. So what I'm going to tell our folks is they need to go out there and get your book, the name again. Uh, All societies die. How to keep hope 
alive. I like that. I like the second part of it, how to keep hope alive. Now, what would you have liked me to ask you in one minute? What would you like to ask? Would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Uh, I'll just make a general statement. If people work together for common prob- to solve common problems, everything can be solved. If we bicker and don't solve problems, nothing is solved. Uh, Dr. Samuel Cohn, professor of sociology at Texas A&M University. It's been my pleasure to speak to you. And what you've, all you've done today thus far is whet the appetite of many to actually get a bit more informed. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you. Very often I've stated that our economic system is a clear and present danger for all of us. And we can we get a good example when we realize that we all know how to make the vaccine. We all know that we could create a Marshall Plan to create factories. I mean, this stuff has been going on for 18 months. A factory may have taken a month or two to build. You know, China built a hospital a week for a while. So we could build factories around the world that mass produces vaccine and got it into the arms of every single person on the planet who wanted it. We know most would. Most people don't uh, fall for the for for some of the shenanigans that we have allowed to occur here in the United States. So uh, we we have the wherewithal to do all of that. And why is it that we don't do it? Because our economic system has strangled us. We are dependent on patents that private corporations have in as much as these mRNA vaccines were developed by with public dollars mostly. And somehow, because of our economic system and lousy politicians, we can't say this is an existential problem for humanity. And as such, we will build factories throughout the world and ensure everybody is vaccinated against this pandemic and any subsequent pandemic that occurs. It should not be in the profit domain because, again, you have to go through the shenanigans as how do I make a dollar out of this? I mean, let's give a simple example here to get the tests right now, cheap tests. We have countries that are charging uh, $3, $3.50. In Great Britain, you get it for free to check for uh, whether you're infected with COVID or not so that you can mitigate it before it becomes a problem. I want you to listen to this and then we'll take it on the other side. One tool we should be deploying at a much greater scale than we currently are is rapid testing. Earlier this year, the Food and Drug Administration authorized several rapid COVID tests for over-the-counter use. Then, as COVID cases fell significantly in the spring, Abbott Laboratories, one of the leading producers of these tests, reportedly began destroying inventory with a limited shelf life. According to the New York Times, workers were told to, quote, take apart millions of the products they worked so hard to create and stuff them into garbage bags. Well, now, as infections continue to surge and millions of kids are heading back to school for in-person learning, demand for these over-the-counter tests are through the roof. And that is because they are a remarkable weapon for the COVID arsenal. For about 25 bucks or so, the at-home antigen tests can deliver a result in about 15 minutes. Are they accurate? Yes. Not quite as accurate as the PCR tests, which are processed in a lab. Are they foolproof? No, but any form of testing is better than no testing, which is perhaps why some countries have been using rapid testing for months. 
England rolled out rapid home tests for everyone back in April. Just recently, Singapore's health officials said that antigen rapid test kits will be given to all households as well as children and staff at kindergartens and preschools. Um, Netherlands is the Netherlands is a place where they're making these fairly available. I've seen pe- people shooting, um, taking pictures from other countries. Uh, this is a doctor posted a picture of them. Home self-administered 50-minute wait COVID tests available in Amsterdam supermarket for about $3.50 each. I don't understand. We still don't have these in the U.S. The, the, um, the ones that Abbott Labs make are like $20 or $25, whereas in the U.K., they're free from the National Health Service. In the Amsterdam, they're 3 bucks. Singapore is getting them. How important do you think it is to a scale up availability and, and bring down the cost? Oh, it's it's the most crucial thing we could do right now to scale up availability is what I've personally been calling for for over a year now. These tests can be produced, especially the rapid antigen tests, uh, like we were talking about, can be produced for very little money. And we're seeing across the globe that they're actually selling for one or two dollars. We could be doing that here in the United States uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I read somewhere, I think per unit price cost production is around 80 cents. Now think now think about it. We are in a pandemic. It is expanding. Things are getting bad. Something costs about 80 cents to make. And we are going to charge $20 to $25. About 2,000 times, 2,000% or 2,500% more. America, when you have a system that we cannot, you can't even do something worth saving humanity unless that guy makes a profit. I mean, it's so short-sighted. You cannot have a country that survives. Have an economic system that supports dying because we, we, the people, have created the technologies to save the world. And because it is placed into private hands and allowed private companies to add value and patent the entire thing, that somehow we can survive if we allow a system like this to continue. Welcome to Politics and Random. Egberto Will is your host. Today we have a very special guest, Ken Rusk. Ken Rusk is a blue-collar construction business entrepreneur who has launched multiple successful endeavors over the last 30 years for the first years of his young working life. He dug ditches for a basement repair company in, nor- in northern Ohio. Over the years, he dug his way to a good life, one shovel of dirt at a time and is now teaching others to do the same. Ken is the author of Blue Collar Cash. Love your work, secure your future, and find happiness for life. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Ken, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, look, man, actually, just looking at the name of the book kind of says something. You you have the, the color blue in there, and you have the word cash. And you have blue collar. Those are, you notice I love blue. I like that. Yeah, I noticed that. Yes. So (laughs) my favorite color too. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I know, you know, people like green, but anyhow, let me ask you this. First of all, why did you write that book? I think it's, it's special in this time. It's very important. Why did you write the book? Well, you know, it, it started out as, 
something that I've been doing. I've, I've been kind of, you know, when, when you hire a lot of people for a living, especially people that have their first, second or third jobs, and, you know, you end up doing almost becoming an involuntary life coach to them, which which is great because you get to help them out with their, their first checking account, their first credit card, their first car, their first apartment, whatever, just kind of lead them through that initial process. And I've been doing it for a long period of time, working on visionary thinking and forward and, and future and all that kind of stuff. And um, I started writing a letter to my daughter who actually got sick about 12 years ago. And um, she's, she's better now, but she had a pretty challenging time for a while. So I started writing a letter to her about what I thought was important in life based on what I learned from running this company. And um, it kind of turned into an 80,000 word manuscript over the next six or seven months. And um, people said, you know, with the experience you have in coaching and what you've done here, you should, you should put this out there beyond the walls of your company and see what happens. And uh, we got really, really lucky. We hit it, uh, hit it pretty big with that. So. Well, let me tell you, first of all, what, what I love is that uh, you're one of the entrepreneurs that are really self-made. Once I heard that you shoveled dirt, you shoveled and did that sort of a work. It reminded me of my formative years here in the United States coming from Panama, where I swept floors, washed dishes, etc. before I formed a company. Uh, those are the entrepreneurs that I have a hell of a lot of respect for, because again, you know what it takes, you know what it took to get there. Now, um, Right now, we have a tendency to push everybody to go to college. Not a bad thing, but tell us a little bit about that. It's not, especially since, according to all statistics right now, the baby boomers are retiring and we're going to have a flood of opportunities that don't require a college degree, but require a hell of a lot of skills. Your point. Well, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. First off, I think part of the problem was in the 80s, we got rid of shop class where kids just, you know, almost accidentally discovered things like, you know, welding and carpentry, plumbing, mechanics, you know, all those types of great, great trades. And um, if you combine that with, you know, kids are now, instead of going in the backyard and building a tree fort with lumber and hammer and nails, they're building them on their smartphones and they're not really getting that kind of earthy experience. So we're, we're having a whole generation of kids that are kind of missing that opportunity. And, and if you pair that with the fact that colleges are really good at marketing themselves to the point where they say, if you don't go to college, you may not be successful, which nothing is further from the truth. So you kind of have that perfect storm of you got to go here or else. And again, there's so much opportunity out there. And that type of thinking, that type of almost, uh, again, perfect storm will actually create opportunities for people like us who are willing to do something with their hands. Well, I mean, that is, that is so important. Now, um, you speak about uh, we are going to be spending a hell of a lot of money on infrastructure in the next several years. But one of the issues that we're going to have to be concerned about is who's going to be able to do all those jobs that need that, that are going to need to get done. We have two things coming up. Baby boomers are taking off. Uh, we're having some immigration issues and we have a whole lot of unskilled people who uh, don't really know how to build roads and build bridges anymore. Well, you know, that's a that's an absolute fact. And that's why I called it a crisis in the book. Uh, I know for a fact that um, the average age of an electrician today is 55 years old. And for every five that are retiring, they're saying only one's coming online. 
I know that that's happening in plumbing and, and carpentry and welding and, and a lot of other places. So I'm really concerned about the fact that we have to start finding a way to s- turn the tide away from the stigma of working with your hands and, and, and really recognize it for what it is. I mean, if there's 167 million people working in this country every day, about 70 million of those people do something with their hands. And uh, yet we're trying to put 100% of the kids through college, which is really going to create an enormous load on supply and demand, but also an amazing opportunity if you're willing to get out there and do something. You know, you, you happen to be discussing this program on a political show. So I want to do a little something here. Um, we, we have an economic system here that has a tendency to tell folks that, you know, make your money work for you. And, in, and, and, and that kind of thinking doesn't realize that your money working for you really means that somebody else is working so that they can appreciate that money that you have. In other words, when, when, when your money is working for you, it's not really working for you. Somebody is doing the work. That's what it really means. And we've been teaching people to go to business schools, to go to all these schools that don't do anything. I have a special feeling for engineering. I'm an engineering by trade. And I figure we are, we are some of the folks that, that do things. The electricians, some of the folks that do things. How do we re, repackage America so that it pays the appropriate price for those who actually get things done? A stockbroker does nothing. A investment banker does nothing, in my humble opinion, that is. Because, again, all of them are dependent on you. And the people that you have been given impetus to do the things that they do out there. Please elaborate on that. Well, you know, it's funny. Let's just take one quick example. And this is going to kind of partially answer your question. I was up in northern Michigan the other day and I saw I was driving to the golf course. That's my that's my favorite passion is to play golf. So I'm driving to the golf course and I passed three fast food signs. One said, $13 an hour, right down the road, the other one said $14 an hour. And the one right down the road from there said $18 an hour. And every one of them had this almost begging sign in front of them, please come work for us. So I guess, I guess it's starting to happen. Supply and demand is starting to work because you have people in finished carpentry in Toledo, Ohio, that are making as much as family doctors and lawyers. So I actually think that that's starting to happen. And when this infrastructure bill passes, there's going to be even more load or demand upon the labor side, which means if you're someone who's willing to pick up a shovel or or, or a torch or a wrench or a hammer or anything, you're going to be able to really job shop six ways from Sunday to find yourself that really great job. And um, it's great because anymore, you know, this used to be the norm. You, you get there on time, you look someone in the eye, you shake their hand firmly, and you're willing to work. That used to be kind of the norm. Now it's so rare that you're just going to vault right to the top. So I don't think there's ever been a better time to get into the blue collar trades. No, Ken, and I, I, I genuinely, genuinely do not know the answer to this. Um, you just mentioned supply and demand. Uh, there has always been a supply and demand issue for many of these jobs. I mean, if you take a look for a long time, uh, fast food workers have always been a rotating door. There's always been, I mean, there's always been, uh, I mean, if you paid these people right, you, they would, it would not have been the kind of rotating doors that you have. And we have a lot of professions like that. 
what's so special about now that um and and, and I, I let me let me digress i have a partial answer uh, but what do you see special with now where we are empowering workers to actually sit back and demand what they're worth well again i i think you know, it's funny because every time our government tries to manipulate supply and demand, they ended up they end up kind of messing it up in some way. So for, this is my opinion. So if, if you think about if, if you think about the, the, just take the pandemic. Yes. The pandemic, in my mind, kind of made everybody um, uh, a kind of stay at home, work on my house, work on my yard, um, live locally, celebrate locally. Um, recreate locally. And that put an enormous amount of pressure on an already pressurized system. But what I think it did is it got people to realize, you know, I don't need to spend my life in a minivan anymore. I, I can stay at home and have a great time with my family. And that caused a whole lot of home improvement things to happen, maintaining, repairing, fixing, replacing, whatever. So I think it just put a whole lot of pressure on those people who are already doing it and, and having them understand, wow, I can raise my prices. I, I can um, I can control my own input, my own output. I can control my revenue. So it's very quietly becoming the thing to do because plumbers are making you know six figures now, where before that wasn't the case. And I just think we have to get out of this stigma of you know I was at a party the other day and. There was parents hanging around and, well, my daughter is going to this college and my son's going to that college. And one said, well, what about what's her name, son? Well, you know, he's just going to be a plumber. And I'm like, wait a minute, just going to be a plumber. <laughs> I need to tell you what that means, because once you understand it, you're going to go, holy cow, why wasn't I thinking that way? So it, it's just a, it's just kind of a, an awareness thing I think we need to fix. You know, it's amazing because the return on investment on that plumber is going to be pretty huge compared to the return on investment of a, of a doctor and what the doctor has to make to make. My, my daughter is in med school and she's going to have probably near $500,000 worth in debt, even though I paid her entire her entire sure. uh, undergrad. It's amazing. But, yeah. um, you know, so the return on investment, but um, uh, based on a little tonality that I hear, heard there about your, your um, maybe a little bit of abstention from the government. Um, I, I want to, I want to, I want to posit something and then hear your response. Okay. Um, the pandemic gave a lot of people, as you said, the opportunity to stay home, but it was not only the opportunity to stay home, but given that we needed them home, they were paid to stay home, which means they had time to ponder. And in having that time to ponder, they had the flexibility, which inherently created shortages and choice. Um, so I may, I may take a little bit of exception when you say the government in some cases screw things up. I agree that the government can screw things up. I think in a lot of the way the welfare system was set up especially for how minorities, what, it, what I think it has done with a lot of families, no, I shouldn't say minorities, but a lot of families because of structure. Um, I think that's been problematic. But also, I think there was a little bit of freedom given to people right now to effectuate exactly what you're talking about, don't you think? Well, well, sure. I mean, if, if you just, if you drive from my office where I'm standing right now to the, to the freeway, which is only a couple miles, there's probably 50 help wanted signs. Right. And, and, and they used to be just subtle, 
a little help wanted sign in the window. Now they're screaming with flags and, you know, all kinds of stuff to get in your face as you're driving by. Come work for us. So, again, I, I do think people took the time and they were able to. They were able to afford to take the time. Right. That's pick- magic. That's yeah. the magic. Yeah. They could afford to take the time because they had that support. Right. And I'm all for um, job shopping to get exactly what you want, because at the end of the day, we all want to do something that we're hopefully somewhat passionate about. But that's not even going to matter if, like I talk about in the book, if you don't have a real clear vision for what you want your life to look like. And I think that's where we fail our kids as well, is we tell them we live through a world of if then if you go to school, if you get good grades, if you get a scholarship, if you get a college degree, if you get a job, then you'll make some money and then you'll be happy. That's that's backwards to me. I think we need to start out with what does your then look like? And then let's find a way to get there, no matter what path you take to do that. You know, um, I think that is uh, some of the best advice from uh, that I've that I've heard, because I believe that wholeheartedly based on Personally, that's what I'm doing right now. I left my own software company to go into political activism, which is something that where I wanted to be, what I enjoy doing. And it was a matter of how could I readjust my life to to be able to do this on much less. So, I mean, that Mm -hmm. I I think in in what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And it's all about ultimately... Uh, happiness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, look, let me tell you, I, I'm, I'm recommending uh, that folks go out there and get your book. I really love what you have to say about um, really going out there and not that last statement that you made is, I think, the most important one of them all. Not the if thens, but where you want to be and what it takes to get there. I think that sure. is so imp- I think that is so important. Now, uh, the last question I always ask people. So prepare yourself. Is what would you have liked me to ask you that you want to get out there for everybody to know, not only about you, but about what we need to do? Well, I I think I think this way, it it, it seems to me that um, when it when it comes to uh, our kids, I think that we need to get them to understand that they are a heck of a lot in more in control of their life than they think they are. Okay, they have all these amazing options. They have all these amazing possibilities. If they just step back a second and get off of the the corral of I've got to do this or else. And I'm not an anti-college guy. I mean, if you're going to operate on my shoulder or if you're going to engineer a building or if you're going to teach people or you're going to manage money, I get that. You need to know everything there is to know. But to just to you know blindly put everybody through there, I think is 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 a challenge. So if if kids are are if they understand that, yeah, I, I can control my input, my output. I can control my revenue. I can control what I want my life to look like. They're going to lead much happier lives. And, and that's kind of what I've dedicated myself to do. You know, I wrote this book, not for the money, because I've been blessed already. Um, and I believe that to whom much is expected or much is given, much is expected. So I donate all the proceeds of my book to kids groups to try to get this message out there. And, and I just hope people take advantage of it. Well, let me tell you something, uh, Mr. Rusk, uh, for somebody who worked themselves up, who really uh, did what it took to get there, as opposed to somebody who was given something or somebody who took something from somebody else 
to make it big, you have my respect. Ken Rusk, a blue-collar business entrepreneur and author of Blue Collar Cash. Love your work. Secure your future and find happiness for life. Go get the book. Thank you so kindly for having been here on Politics Done Right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. 90.1 FM, Houston. They can listen as well at kpft.org. They can contribute to us at kpft.org. They can call us at 713-526-5738, but it's at kpft.org. Folks, we are at the end of the program. I hope you enjoyed what we had to offer. We will continue to give you fresh data, fresh programming every single week from Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. 